Happy New Year to you all. Wish you a joy-filled, healthy, and happy New Year. And to get us started on the right foot, sorry, bad pun to start our year off with, um, we have Max Frenzel. Max is uh, an international best-selling author of Time Off, a practical guide to building your rest ethic and finding success without stress, which is a wonderful theme for anyone who wants to start planning their year and reaching all the potential that they can. Max's ideas have been featured in Fast Company, Financial Times, Thrive Global, Entrepreneur Magazine, and other publications. After Max received his uh, PhD in Quantum Information Theory from Imperial College London and working a postdoctoral research fellow at Tokyo University, Max got involved in several tech startups, focusing on the intersection of AI research and product design. He's been particularly interested in the applications of AI and deeper learning to creativity, design, and music, and most recently started applying this knowledge to another passion we both share, optimizing human performance and well-being. This talented gentleman also composed the music uh, for our lunch today, aptly named Happily Ever After. All of these things we will dive into on our Barefoot Lunch with Max Frenzel. Let's get started. Welcome to the Barefoot Lunch Podcast. I'm here with Max Frenzel. Good day to you, sir. Thanks so much for having me. Good morning to you as well. I, I think the first thing I should ask is, what type of coffee are you drinking this morning? <laughs> that is a great question. It's a beautiful floral Kenyan from Coffee Rights here in Sanganjaya, one of my favorite coffee roasters. Nice. And and what uh, what type of accents does that have as far as flavors go? It's very, mm, let me have another sip. The Kenyans are often quite floral and it definitely has this floral note, but it also has a nice kind of chocolatey, uh, earthy note to it. That's great. And do you, do you sip wine as well? I do, although I'm not as deep into wine as I'm into coffee. And I, I used to live in London. I had a lot of friends who were really deep into the wine scene there. And like I was always hanging out with them. That's kind of where my wine education comes from. But otherwise, I'm much more sophisticated in my coffee drinking than in my wine drinking. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, for, for a barefoot lunch, it's probably better to be with coffee right now. So uh, I'd like to start us off with uh, three questions that uh, we ask everybody and see where that takes us. First off, uh, what one book do you recommend everyone should read? Well, that's a tricky question. And I guess one answer you're probably not looking for is my own book. Oh, I love <laughs> that. I do recommend to everyone to read. And we might talk about that a little bit later. Besides that, um, it really depends on the person. Like I like giving books as a gift, and I think they're also quite personal gifts. Recently, one I've gifted most is actually one I've got lying here on my desk. It's How to Live, um, 27 Conflicting Answers and One Weird Conclusion by Derek Sivis. It's a wonderful little book, highly recommended. Um, very 
short read as well. Otherwise, other great books are Surely You're Joking, uh, Mr. Feynman, I think it's called by Richard Feynman. Yep. Um, wonderful book, huge inspiration to me growing up, um, going into physics later as well. Um, yeah, I think those are two of the books I've definitely recommended and gifted the most. In terms of fiction, Siddhartha uh, by Harman Hesse, actually, I've given to a lot of people. Nice. That's great. I uh, I like that uh, like that book. I am um, our book club did uh, the glass bead game uh, uh, this uh, two years ago, and that changed my life. That that book it was amazing, and uh, a couple of the guys a couple of guys in the group hated it. Um, <laughs> it's a long read. I think Siddhartha is a better place to start with uh, Hess mm. if you're going to jump in, but. Uh, yeah, just it. Uh, I thought I just found it quite insightful. But you have it's a slow burn, and you have to get to the end to really mm. appreciate it. So uh, that's fantastic. Those are good books. So we'll put the link on there, and uh, also I would recommend anybody to go to your website. And you have you have awesome notes with all the books you're reading, and you just put in the notes, you. and you got some footnotes in there, and I, I love it. Yeah, I take very extensive notes when I'm reading as kind of part of my morning ritual as well. Um, the notes on my website, they're very, I'm much quicker at reading and taking notes than actually transcribing them and putting them up <laughs> on my website. But I hope they'll catch up with that at some point. Yeah, that's one of the things I, I'm working to do better is write reviews for, for my website. Mm. Just, because I, I you read something and then you want to kind of digest it. And, and yeah. I think writing is part of that. Totally. Process, right. What, uh, let's jump into the next question. So what's your favorite lunch? <laughs> I think it also depends if I'm making lunch myself or yeah. if I'm eating out. Uh, if I make it myself, I really love baking. Um, I make my own sourdough bread. I've been doing that for wow. quite a few years now, definitely yeah. before it got popular through the pandemic and the flour was sold out everywhere. Um, so I really love a good piece of i don't know rice sourdough bread with some avocado on top and a fried egg that's kind of my go-to lunch at home uh okay. for myself eating out i hate picking one particular thing so i like variety i guess i don't know if that's a good answer well so uh, we'll have lunch we'll go over to your house and i'd, I'd love to have <laughs> exactly sourdough bread with avocado love it had that for breakfast this morning and uh awesome we'll, we'll throw an egg on there fantastic let's do it and uh, if you were to invite anyone to lunch, living or dead, maybe we're having some sourdough bread, what, uh, <laughs> who would you invite over? Again, tricky question. Um, it's really difficult to pick just one person, but I think, although I'd have to prepare for that conversation, that, like figure out where I actually want to take this, but Richard Feynman, uh, famous physicist, yeah. now dead already for 30, 40 years, uh, he's just been such a huge inspiration to me growing up. He was one of the reasons that led me to do well, a degree in physics and later PhD in physics. Um, and he's also just such an incredibly inspiring character, not just his scientific side, but also his personal side. And he was probably one of the best teachers ever. Uh, but I heard from people talking about him or writing about him he is also quite an intimidate or was a quite intimidating person if you interacted with him directly so i'm not sure if he would be the greatest person just to have a quick lunch with or something yeah. it might take a lot longer to get close to him um but yeah that would be a really really interesting that's interesting because you're you don't have him in your in we'll talk about uh, time off in a bit but he's not in the book mm. right 
So that's a good would, point, actually. I hadn't thought about that. What would you talk to him about? Yeah, that's exactly the kind of tricky thing, I think, where to even start with. Um, I would definitely thank him for like his work and what he's done just to inspire me and so many other people around the world. Um, I don't know. I don't think I would talk physics with him, at least not initially, because I would just be so intimidated. And I'm a weird, like my thought process or my kind of my thinking is quite weird. I get very deep into something, but then once I'm not actively working on it anymore, it kind of disappears. I I know I can get quickly back into the subject again, but right now I've been out of physics for, I don't know, seven, eight years. Um, I feel very uncomfortable talking to other physicists at kind of higher level of physics. Like it's, it's very much gone. I'm sure I could get back into it, but yeah, talking to Feynman about physics, (laughs) I would be completely afraid of making a fool of myself. So I just ask him, I don't know what gets him excited at the moment or what, what brings him joy at the moment, something like that to start things off and then have a very casual discussion. I'm sure it would take it into some very, very interesting directions. Would, I'd, I'd ask him who's in Schrodinger's coffin. <laughs> Sorry, I saw that the other day, and I just started laughing out. But so we've kind of touched on it a bit. Uh, tell us about you know how you got to where you're at in Tokyo, uh, kind of growing up, and and walk us through your your story of your life. Sure. Um, I'm originally German. I grew up in Germany in a tiny little village. I left, I was very fortunate in a weird way. And again, partly thanks to Feynman and other great people. I don't know, at around age 15, I guess, Mm -hmm. it became very, very clear to me that I want to be a physicist and I want to be like at the top of the physics world, really driving kind of our deep understanding of the universe. And so it was quite clear to me, like when I finished high school that, yeah, I'm going to study physics and I'm aiming for the highest levels of that. And that then brought me to the UK. Um, I ended up at Imperial College in London, which was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I actually got rejected by Cambridge, which would have been my first choice, but I was so glad in hindsight. And I actually got to turn them down. They offered me a place for a master's and I said, no, sorry, I'm staying at Imperial. (laughs) So I did a bachelor, master, and my PhD all at Imperial College. And I got into this area of quantum information theory, which is probably best known for quantum computing. I was working on something slightly different called quantum thermodynamics. So how do you convert heat into useful energy at the really microscopic quantum scale? And it gets very closely related then to the nature of time itself as well. I mean, in thermodynamics, you have the dynamics in there, which requires time. So we were studying how does time work on the quantum scale. Um, But already doing my PhD, I realized that I'm a good researcher, but I'm not top level, like really high. I had so many smart people around me, but I realized I'm very good at presenting and selling my research. So I was actually invited sometimes to better conferences or whatever. Then the people around me who clearly I saw did the better research. Mm. So I realized, hmm, how can I use the skill or it's kind of unfair for them as well, but it means I have something special that they don't have. And I slowly got dragged a little bit into the entrepreneurial side as well. I started a startup while I was still doing my PhD. Um, And then at the end of my PhD, Actually, I also came to Japan for a postdoc uh, one year at Tokyo University during my PhD still, which was a little bit weird, but 
once I finished everything, I realized, okay, I want to work on something more applied. I love building these theories, but the things that I was working on were very abstract and theoretical and probably don't have any tangible applications over the next 20, 30 years or so. Mm. So I wanted to work on something more practical and AI and deep learning just seemed like the perfect fit because the math that's used in those fields is very, very different to the math that's being used in quantum physics. Mm. Um, and also it's very practical and it's got a huge range of applications. So it's not like you're choosing a particular field, you're just choosing a new tool, which you can then apply to all sorts of different fields. So that got me into AI, deep learning. And I worked in a startup here in Tokyo for two and a half years. Um, I really liked the work, but the culture turned out to be very, very not aligned with what I believe in. And about a year or so into it, I started realizing um, that, well, it was actually a slow trip through the mountains here in Japan, where setting like a beautiful onsen yokan, looking out at the mountains. And it hit me in that moment that never in my life before had I felt both more busy, but at the same time, less productive and creative. Yeah. And that's kind of when I realized something's wrong with the startup culture, something's misaligned there. And that really got me thinking a lot about time off and the value of time off. And I started thinking back to my PhD days. Yep. I was extremely lucky with my supervisor and with the group I was working in. I essentially had a free year deadline to write my thesis. Yep. I had absolutely no restrictions whatsoever in between. I could literally disappear for several months without asking anyone for permission. Um, I didn't have to work if I didn't feel like it. But when I came back, Back to the work, it was all the more productive. And now then a few years later, contrasting that to that startup experience, that really got me thinking about the value of time off and leisure and digging deeper into that. And that eventually led to me writing a book about the value of time off. Uh, I, yeah, that's sort of... I love the, uh, the story in time off about you going off and off to Greece and writing your thesis, your dissertation. And uh, yeah. I think... Yeah, I would. Thinking back, I wish that's what I would have done. I, I sat <laughs> through it and kind of rigor mole of uh, doing that. So yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. What did you do your dissertation on? Um, it was really on quantum thermodynamics and the role of time and clocks in um, quantum scale engines. So. I don't want to go too deep okay. into it. And as I said, kind of like I, I might make a fool of myself as well, but you can build engines on a very, very tiny scale. So an engine is really something that converts heat into useful energy. Uh, and it turns out theoretically, you can build an engine within an atom and atom has significant, like enough complexity inside in terms of different energy levels that you can theoretically build an atom within an engine. Um, but to do these things, well, an engine that doesn't change over time is useless. So you need something that gives time and that makes change over time. But we realized that this basically the clock is a resource as well. Think about the pointer on your watch, right? Yeah. The hand. It's a very clear and pointy thing. But on the quantum scale, this actually starts degrading. So your very, very clear and narrow point that becomes more and more blob-like until in yeah. the end, you just have a circle in the middle of a clock, which is completely useless as a time giver. So on a quantum scale, we realize you have to stabilize these clocks. Otherwise you essentially lose time. Time becomes more and more blurry. So that's roughly one of the things I was working on. Wow. Okay. Well, let's, let's stay on this because you, you've been working with um, deep learning AI and now you've taken that into music and working with, uh, you know, 
controlling one's heart rate and, and talk around what you're doing with, with uh, your music now. Yeah. So about three, four years ago, basically at the same time, I realized this last, the first startup I kind of got into in the AI field just wasn't aligned with my culture or my, what, what I believe company culture should be like. <clears throat> I decided to quit and I joined a friend's company. He's been working on the intersection of AI and music for I think 15 years now, he did this PhD in AI music 20 years ago when basically no one was looking into either of those two and definitely not the combination. And um, we've been working on all sorts of like intersections of AI, music and creativity, anything that roughly falls under the umbrella of computational creativity. Mm-hmm. Roughly half of what we were doing were commercial projects. For example, um, I did a project for Pioneer DJ. They're one of the main DJ hardware manufacturers where we identified, okay, where are the vocals in the track? So you give it kind of a like a song and it figures out exactly where in this track are the vocals mm-hmm. and it shows that to users because as a dj don't want to overlap vocal with vocal it sounds terrible something like that or we also did a project for uh Yusen. they're kind of like spotify um here in japan but specifically for shops and restaurants so whatever shop you walk into if there's music playing it's basically streamed through Yusen. and we're using uh for example what's the time of day what's the current weather how many people are in the shop to give better playlist generation but a playlist creation or for she said or the big hot uh, makeup manufacturer their flagship store is now running generative music like really the music is generated on the fly also based on this kind of real-time data like weather and we were involved in that project as well and the other 50 percent of what we were doing was purely art-based working with artists creating our own artworks interactive performances so we had a piece at the barbican center in london um, but yeah, anything that's really falls under the umbrella, how do you apply AI computation to creative fields? And my personal interest there was specifically in the music field. Nice. So, and you're doing some work around like now with biorhythm and using yeah. that to, you know, help people to control breathing, control heart rate, and, and really to be able to live healthier lives. Right. Exactly. So last year, I actually took a new job. Um, I was managing a team of AI researchers and engineers building chatbots for hospitality. And I can only say really the best things about both the people and the company, but it just was not aligned with me personally. I realized I really find it extremely draining leading people around something that I'm not deeply passionate about. And I just wasn't passionate about the product. And during that time, I genuinely felt, oh my God, do I have anxiety? It took me a while to realize, no, it's just a job is misaligned with me. But during that time, I came across what's called heart rate variability biofeedback training, HFV biofeedback training. So a lot of people think a healthy heart beats like a clock, like a metronome, but actually a healthy heart has a lot of variation between individual beats. Um, it really reacts to the tiniest changes in the environment, to the tiniest stresses. And naturally also, as we breathe in, the yeah. heart rate accelerates. As we breathe out, the heart rate decelerates. And this variation 
this heart rate variability is actually the single best sign or single best metric we have to estimate someone's overall health and especially their stress response. And it can be trained like in the elite performance community, Olympic athletes, but also business leaders, this heart rate variability biofeedback training has become super popular over the last couple of years. And I realized last year when I was kind of thinking, oh my God, do I have anxiety? It really helped me just kind of deal with that. And then I thought, okay, how can I both get out of the job I am clearly not enjoying as much as I want and also go deeper into this thing that I really believe in and has helped me a lot. Uh, so I thought, okay, can I apply my background in music and AI to heart rate variability biofeedback training? Essentially, how the protocols usually work is you simply follow a breath timer on the screen that tells you when to breathe in and out and you in real time see your heart rate and those metrics changing. But the feedback part of this is really, really simple right now. It's really just you watching that timer on the screen. Yeah. What I'm thinking and what I've been experimenting with over the last six months is can I create music in real time that actually helps you get even higher heart rate variability, get even deeper into that state. So that can be first simply pre-written music that's specifically trying to achieve that. But much more interestingly is going to be later. Can I hook that up to the sensors that you're using, the heart rate sensor, and then in real time, use that information to generate music based on your bio data to really get these tight and powerful feedback loops. And yeah, that's what I'm working on at the moment. That's awesome. So what would, uh, uh, there's two things that, uh, that entice me. One is, uh, as a marathon runner, I'm uh, quite uh, interested to know how that works with the elite athletes. And then second, as a, as a business owner and a, a entrepreneur, how do I, you know, I, I've always, uh, one of my favorite uh, books was uh, the studies by Jim Lair. And mm. he did, uh, he wrote a book called uh, mental toughness training and sports. Mm. Um, and I met with Jim, uh, in Orlando and they got a great Institute there, but really, you know, he, he was working with tennis players and how to work with their mentality. Cause physically yeah. you got top tier athletes. There's not physically that much difference between them, but for him, it was the space between the points and that self-talk. And so he was really working with kind of our, the messaging point of, of, yeah of an athlete and then put that into business. Uh, but you're talking much more around the physiology of, of that. Exactly. So I think often when we think about anything to do with mental health, whether it's actually in kind of clinical settings where people have genuine mental health problems or whether it's in the top kind of elite performance world where you're really trying to stay focused and calm under stress, we often think about addressing the mind through the mind itself, right? Through self-talk, talk therapy, these kind of things. But the mind and body are so extremely connected. They are, in a way, the same thing, just kind of different manifestations of two different things, depending on how you want to see it. But what's still very neglected, it's being addressed a lot and like looked into over just the last couple of years, and there's going to be an explosion over the next few years, but trying to address the mind through the body, like trying to make physical changes or do something to or with your body that then trickles up towards the mind actually. And that's very powerful. And that's kind of what we're doing with HIV biofeedback training as well. Essentially it's training for your autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system 
handles everything kind of that's outside of your conscious control. The heart rate, for example, you're not willing every beat, like you're not thinking contract, 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 yep. right? Same with your breathing usually, um, same with so many other processes. Okay. And they are very, very closely related to your subconscious mind as well and all these things. Uh, but we can indirectly take control of, over some of these. For example, breathing, it usually happens controlled by the autonomic nervous system, but we can actually take control of our breathing. It's sort of the easiest access to the autonomic nervous system. Then very clearly, because the heart accelerates with inhale and decelerates with exhale, through controlling our breathing, we can indirectly control our heart as well. And from there, we get access to all sorts of different things. That's brilliant. That's interesting. There's a yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I there's um, a lot around what we would have in the spiritual realm as well mm. uh, with this. I mean, the that's been around for thousands of years. Being controlling your breath, um, breathing absolutely up through, um, different zones of the body. Um, that's why I, I recommend for you jump into uh, the glass bead game. Uh, pulling awesome. the kind of books. I think uh, you'll love that. That's uh... Actually, let me just say one more thing when you bring up the spiritual side, because there's a very, very interesting kind of correlation that people found. So this heart rate variability biofeedback training is also called resonance breathing yeah. because you're breathing at a very particular frequency, uh, which depends on your physiology. So for me, the optimal one is 5.4 breaths per minute. Mm -hmm. I'm quite slow. The average across people is around six breaths per minute. That's mm -hmm. where your heart rate variability is highest. Researchers found that across cultures, when they find or look at people chanting or singing kind of religious music or doing dances, which involve like kind of ecstasy and breathing as well, across different cultures, they all sort of naturally lend themselves to falling into this kind of six breaths per minute breathing range. So people thought that kind of at least part of why people feel so ecstatic doing these things is actually because they're just breathing at exactly the right frequency, which gets them into these states. So this is really interesting, I thought. Oh, that's great. So let's uh, let's put a bow on that. If uh, for our listeners, if, if I was going to take away one thing to improve my life around biofeedback and breathing and what would be that one thing that I'd want to take away from our conversation, Max? If you want to do something actually practical, um, it's like a replacement or a supplement for a meditation practice as well. Uh, sit down and breathe at six breaths per minute. So that's one breath every 10 seconds. Uh, breathe in through the nose, exhale through the mouth. Ideally, you want to do about four seconds inhale, six seconds exhale, that kind of ratio. Yep. If you want to go deeper, then you use a sensor and you actually measure at different kind of breathing rates and figure out what's the optimal for you. But if you just want to have something you can do literally today, sit down and breathe at roughly six breaths per minute. Ideally, do it for 20 minutes or so, um, but even just a few breaths of that will really help uh, calm you. And it is really like training. So actually, the more you do it and you need to do it regularly, that's where you really start seeing the benefits. So it is really a workout for your autonomic nervous system. Fantastic. Thank you for that. That's a, that's wonderful. Well, let's, let's talk about more habits. Uh, let's jump into your book, Time Off, a, a little bit. Um, that, I mean, there's a lot in the book. And as I told you when we were first talking about it, it was, it's a slow read, right? Because there's a lot you want to take through. And mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you're talking about sleep and solitude, play, travel, technology, all kinds of stuff. 
in there. Um, some great uh, biographies, which I appreciate. I mean, that's how I, I wrote my book. I think you need to have models. Models are are huge. What um, if what do you think if you were to pick one chapter out of that book? What was the most important for you that your takeaway uh, out of all those that you think if you're going to work on the one thing, what would be mm. that you'd work on right away to get the most bang for your buck? I actually have three different answers to that, I think. So first of all, all three of them, yeah. as you said, we have very different chapters and we have very different biographies and profiles in there. And yep. we did that on purpose because, well, we talk about this idea of a rest ethic that we need to complement or supplement our work ethic with. We believe that there's no one size fits all rest ethic at all. Is personal. It looks different for everyone. It actually looks different for people, same person over the years, over the seasons. Um, so we really encourage people to look at the different things, try them for themselves, see what works. Some of it is even contradictory and then make it your own. With that being said, I think the one thing that's most universal and kind of highest bang for buck is sleep. Good sleep is such a foundational thing. And without good sleep, you just can't do anything. It's such a multiplier in both directions. I need a lot of sleep. I know if I get less than eight hours of sleep, the next day is not going to be great. If it's less than seven hours, the next day is going to be completely useless, especially, and we talk about that a lot, in the future of work where AI is taking over more and more of busy work, what's going to be left to us is creativity, the empathy, and those sort of things. And you're not empathetic if you're lacking sleep. You're not creative if you're lacking sleep. Yes, you can still do busy work, but that's about all you can do on little sleep. So if you're going to work on one thing, work on your sleep. But then the more overarching answer, I think, is like what's the core message of the book? It's actually really a book about creativity and being creative and also, again, empathetic, kind of building these skills that are more considered soft skills, mm -hmm. but I think they will be the most valuable skills in not in the distant future, the very near future, probably. So it's really a book about creativity. That's great. I, um, I was just uh, listening to a recent uh, interview that Sam Harris was having and, you know, mm. every, about sleep. And that seems to be uh, uh, around everybody. And that's one of the things I think personally I've prided myself on being able to live off five hours sleep and just uh, being overrated. But then uh, you have people that uh, take a lot of cat naps mm. and th that seems to be an, a way around that is uh, to some extent. Yes. But uh, I think I'm, um, I'm in the minority and uh, I need to probably get more sleep. So I'll work on that. There is a tiny fraction of people who can genuinely be as like productive, effective, and healthy on five hours as people are on eight or nine, but it's much, much lower than most people think. And yeah. the thing is, the first thing that suffers if we don't sleep well is our metacognition. So how well do we understand our own understanding, kind of our own sense of self? So it's the, the less you sleep, the more easy it gets to fool yourself that you don't need much sleep. Oh. But uh, in writing the book, what habits did you change? Good question. Um, I think a lot of it, and that's also something we really recommend to people where this really starts is around awareness. Often you don't actually notice how much you need time off until you take a step away and take some time off. So it's kind of a little bit of a chicken and egg problem there. But I think with the right reflection um, exercises, kind of journaling 
habits, for example, you can build that awareness, even if you just have like small pockets where you can sit down and think. So I've definitely become more aware, maybe kind of as an early warning system by journaling around these things or thinking about these topics or related things specifically, I catch myself if I'm slipping, if I get busy in a negative way um, if I'm not taking enough time off. So that's definitely been one thing. Just writing the book itself actually was a wonderful habit. Um, I think it was the most productive I felt in many, many years. And I hope I'm going to get a chance to write another book at some point, but only if it feels right and if I actually have something to say. But just having this, I don't know, every morning, I would do my usual morning ritual of like making coffee, reading a bit, but then afterwards going back through the previous days, writing and editing. Also, I wrote this book with a co-author who's based in the US. So we basically shifted by time zones and every day I would see his writing, do an editing pass through it. I would also see the editing he had done on my work and it was kind of this back and forth. And then going into a very solid block of, I don't know, an hour and a half of focused writing afterwards. It was a beautiful ritual, beautiful routine, and I could get into flow much more easily than with most other things. So that was a very nice ritual for me. And we talk about this in the book, actually. Um, It comes from Aristotle, this idea of noble leisure. And kind of counterintuitively, a lot of really high quality time off actually kind of looks like work. It's Mm -hmm. defined by the meaning it gives to your life, right? So for Aristotle, rest and leisure were actually completely opposite. Rest always asks the question, rest from what? Usually the answer being for more work. Leisure is defined entirely in itself through the meaning it gives you. So to me, writing the book was a ton of work, but it was also the highest form of noble leisure because it filled me with so much energy and uh, meaning. It actually gave me more energy back than I put into that. And I think that's a really important thing if you're looking for leisure activities. And again, think about other things. A lot of people enjoy cooking meals for their family and their friends. To some people, this is terrible work, but those who find it meaningful is one of the most beautiful, joyful things. Same with gardening or so many other leisure activities. That's great. I like um, in the book, I didn't know much about uh, Marie Kondo and uh, I know she's uh, quite well known, but her idea about spark sparking joy and, Mm. and her decluttering of a calendar is, you know, is uh, does that bring you joy is what you're doing (laughs) bringing. And I just applaud that. That to me was a huge, huge takeaway. Um, And I think that's going back to your idea about, you know, leisure versus that kind of busy work. It's uh, that work. That's a joy. is never difficult. Right. So one of the things that I was thinking about in, in reading the book was uh, about millennials Mm. and they, the younger generation seems to be, appear at least particularly affected by burnout. Um, Mm -hmm. They've self-worth around their jobs, uh, but then they compare their success to others, whether that's on social media, and then they go in their hobbies and all their leisure time as well is compared um, as well. Talk a little bit around, you know, what's, what's a takeaway for, for those millennials that they can help them in, in their world. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I guess I'm a millennial myself, and I've definitely caught myself doing the same things and falling into the same traps. And even now, having published a book on the topic um, and being considered by some people an expert on the topic, I'm still struggling with it all the time. <laughs> uh, so that's also definitely a takeaway for everyone. Don't push yourself or don't feel too bad if you're struggling with this. Uh, everyone is. It's continuous learning process. I guess there's this pressure of the hustle culture as well. And as you mentioned, kind of like every... Even if you do a hobby, you kind of have to think, oh, how can I make this into like some side business or some other side hustle or something? And it is tricky. I guess what I tell them, it's similar to what I tell a lot of other driven and type A people. First of all, changing your language is very, very powerful. Instead of thinking about taking a break that feels like something negative or something you have to do, or you're kind of admitting weakness, say something like, I'm taking some time to incubate on new ideas. These kind of shifts in language, I think, are very powerful. And they're not just tricks because they're actually true, right? Mm -hmm. I'd recommend people, if they actually want to be productive, if they want to get big things done, if they want to, I don't know, make a lot of money and kind of get the fame they want to show off, whatever it is, if you want to achieve these big things, you need to invest in your subconscious mind uh, into this creative process, into also this empathetic nature. And to do that right, you need to have time off. So for example, one thing I really like studying when we're looking or writing the book was the creative process itself. Yeah. And it's broken down by creativity researchers into roughly four stages. There's preparation, incubation, illumination, and verification. Mm -hmm. First, you need to actually prepare for it. That's really the active hard work. You sit down, you understand the problem you're working on, you kind of do your research around it, you place it into a bigger context. But then once you kind of preloaded your brain with this information, you actually need to take a step away. You need to hand the problem over to your subconscious mind, which then makes these sort of bigger um, associations with different things. If you're constantly stuck with your head against the problem, you're only seeing very narrow part of it. You need to step away and allow your subconscious mind to take over. And then if you do that, illumination happens. That's kind of the stereotypical aha moment in the shower. Yeah. And then you need to, again, get back to verification, see if your great idea was actually that brilliant and how does it fit into the bigger picture. And then you keep repeating the cycle. But What's often overlooked is that 50% of this creative process is passive time. It's time off. It might be time working on some other problem. Again, something meaningful, not distracted, busy work, but kind of deep engaged work in, for example, cooking or whatever it is. But it is time off from the actual problem. So if you're constantly banging your head against the thing, if you're priding yourself in how busy you are and how good you are at grinding things out, well, sorry, but you're not going to be very effective at actually getting the things done that you want to do. So I'm not sure if that's very specific to millennials, but that's kind of what I would tell anyone who kind of sees this as an either or situation. You either take your time off or you're successful. It's completely misguided um, assumption. It's actually, you need one to have the other. That's mm -hmm. why we also like to talk about the work ethic and the rest ethic, like inhale and exhale. Your work ethic is like your inhale, mm -hmm. but you can only inhale for so long. Right. And a lot of people are trying to do that. They keep inhaling, holding a breath, inhaling. That's why we're seeing this burnout issue. And yeah, all yeah. what we're seeing right now. Eventually, you need to exhale and you need one to prepare you for the other. They work together, not against each other. Yeah.
A couple of examples to, to highlight what you're talking about. One is uh, whenever I'm doing any, like if I'm writing a poem, definitely I'll go in and I'll write and I'll work on it, but it's got to go in the drawer and incubate. Mm. Yeah, because that's great. It, whether, and I think that's with any creative pursuit is you get so inundated that you can't see it correctly anymore. And it almost has yeah. to become a foreign matter again to look at it with fresh eyes and then be able to, and there's a real art to that because if you put it away for too long, mm. you lose the momentum and you lose the initial inertia that, that created, totally. that started that. But on the flip side, if you're just looking at it all the time, it'll, it, you'll just over edit it and ruin it. Yeah. I think there's another great thing that the elite performance community is very conscious about and really trying to push themselves. It's being able to switch completely between on and off, right? Yep. I think a lot of us are constantly hovering somewhere in the middle, but two hours at 50% are not ex at all the same output as one hour at 100%. And I think with what you're saying as well, like, you have to work on it, but then you have to flip off and really go away from it because then you can give it that time, but not too long. You can completely let it go. And it actually does all this nice incubation in your brain. And then when you get back to it, you're again to a hundred percent. That's a, when I, uh, the other example I have for you is uh, when I, if I have a, uh, a serious decision to make, I never make it unless I go out and take a run. So someone will you know, ask me something at, at work, And I'll say, yeah, I'll get back to you tomorrow on it because I need to go out the next morning, go and run. Once I come back from the run, I've, I've got the answer. And, it, and it might not be the answer that I initially went out with, but it's yeah. just kind of incubated and it's, it's uh, able to change. And, it, and it also it helps to get more oxygen in the brain, like, uh, like you said. That's so great. And as a fellow runner, I can totally relate. And actually something related to that. I very strongly believe in the power of gut feelings. Yep. But the thing is, again, if you're busy and if you don't have the time off, if you don't have the calm, the signal to noise ratio is terrible and you don't actually like feel those gut feelings properly. So kind of to recalibrate your senses, a run is great. Or again, any kind of form of high quality time off. Let's, uh, I mean, going around intuition, um, Carl Jung's, Uh, idea about synergy and synchronicity, I think no. is just, is, uh, I just think that's so important. And the only way to really get synchronicity is to be in flow and to be in flow, you need to be able to recognize patterns and, and not being in flow is some, if you want to get really Zen on us, not being in flow is also being in flow. But uh, if you want to be in flow and really understand what's going on, you have to be rested and, and open yeah. to what's going on. So let's, totally. I'm going to flip it on 180 degrees. So um, I'm an empty nester now, but it, you know, if you're, you're in your thirties, forties, you got kids, you got spouse, you got bills to pay. Uh, you're not able to go and take that month off and, and run off to Bahamas. It's, How how do you take that time off? And when you do have a lot going on around yeah. the world that you're not in control of? Absolutely. That's kind of, again, one thing we wanted to achieve with the book is have all those different levels from the tiniest micro practice to a year-long sabbatical. Mm -hmm. And each of them are valuable in their own way. And actually, 
that was one of the key lessons that I think the Harman Hesse profile in the book shows. If you can't appreciate the small moments of time off, the longer things will actually often leave you just even more empty afterwards or even more dissatisfied afterwards. So it actually helps starting at the small scale, the things that everyone can practice. And there's so many different things. Um, I can just name a few that I'd recommend. So one, get yourself a little ritual, a little habit that you can do when you feel like you need to step away, maybe just five minutes to refresh yourself, or maybe it's to incubate on something, even just a short time. So for me, one example is making a cup of coffee, right? I grind the beans from scratch. I do a pour over. It takes 10 minutes in total, but it really helps me reset. I can only do that so many times a day. Otherwise, I'm <laughs> totally hyper-caffeinated, but that's just one example. Get yourself a nice ritual. It can be a run as well, right? That definitely works as well. I got a friend that goes out to nature. He, he goes and talks to a tree for a bit and then goes back inside. Beautiful. That's, that's amazing. I, and I, one that I would highly recommend that worked for me for many years, and you've already mentioned it, but it's what I started my book off with was uh, journaling. Mm. And I think yeah. that's, if you're not capturing what's going on in your mind, you don't know how to change course. Completely. And it's, you know, journaling's no way to get, uh, sometimes you get some good ideas, but I'll go months without anything worthwhile yeah. in yeah. those things. Most that's why I, I understand why Kafka wanted everything burnt uh, before he died. That makes total sense to me. I, I want everything destroyed before, because it's just mostly rubbish. There's just nothing important in there. Totally. But you're getting a rubbish outside of your head, right? That's right. And it, uh, I think that's so, so important. What, uh, Max, what brings you joy? So many things. Uh, it very much depends on context, timing, whatever. I get a lot of joy from spending time around friends um, with my girlfriend. Like recently, earlier this year, I bought a motorbike, going out into the beautiful Japanese countryside on my motorbike. It gets me into a very nice flow state. I don't have any technology. Well, I guess the bike is technology, but (laughs) no email inbox, no Slack around me to check. Uh, That brings me a lot of joy. Reading has always brought me joy and will always bring me joy. Working on things I'm very passionate about brings me some of the most joy I can think of. And again, it's related to flow. We already talked about that. Flow is one of the most wonderful and powerful states we can get into. And you need to have a certain level of challenge and difficulty to get yourself into flow. So right now, working on this HIV biofeedback stuff, because I find it so fascinating. I really enjoy the work I'm doing. Um, I think it's going to make a difference. That brings me a ton of joy at the moment. Sure, there are difficult times as well. I mean, running a business always has difficult parts to it, but just the creation process brings me a ton of joy. Um, Baking sourdough bread brings me a lot of joy. A nice cup of coffee brings me a lot of joy. So I guess I'm quite a joyful person in general. Can I ask you what brings you joy at the moment? Um, uh, I... Playing the ukulele is probably my most, just um, the music and when I can get the notes to sing and it just, it it Mm. reverberates within the soul. Um, Just the vibration of the instrument against the body. There's just so many different levels that that brings so much joy to to my world. Um, That's probably the the top notch one uh, uh, right now. Um, as well so much uh i'm I'm lucky and i i love what i do with work and uh, i love running and uh, there's just uh, so much other things as well reading as well um so 
anything that we haven't uh, talked about that we wanted to, to put out there, Max? Ah, good question. Um, I think we've covered a lot of different things and I just want to reiterate or maybe stress the point that it kind of all starts from awareness. Mm. And as you just said as well, just having even just a five minute journaling practice is so powerful. We have a couple of journaling prompts in the book. Uh, one, I really recommend starting people with, I don't think that's actually in the book, that question, but it's very simple. It's, is all my hard work actually working? It seems very trivial, but if you sit down with it for a little bit, maybe more than five minutes, you might uncover something very interesting. You might realize, yes, my hard work is working and then great, keep doing what you're doing. That's wonderful. But you might also uncover something very, very different. And maybe also one more thing is this idea of a rest ethic. I want to stress it. Counterintuitively, good time off, good rest actually takes a bit of work and it takes planning. A lot of people think time off just happens in the white spaces in the calendar, but that's really not true. That's what we call it a rest ethic, right? You need to plan it and protect it as much as you do, let's say, a work meeting. I think, especially over the last year with the pandemic, with boundaries disappearing, people have started realizing oh, wait, actually, I need to build those boundaries proactively myself, and I need to think consciously and actively about my rest. So I think that's really something I'd like to I'd like to have more people think about, being more conscious of their rest ethic. That's great. Thank you for that. I, um, the, the questions I th- are so important. And one of the things why reading is important and, and talking to you and talking to others is it forces us to ask different questions than Mm -hmm. what we're normally asking ourselves. And I think one of the things that's important in a journaling habit is to set yourself a time limit or a a distance limit, one page, two page, three page, whatever, but set a limit and keep on going as fast as possible to shut off that kind of editor. Don't, Mm don't care about the the grammar or the spelling or any of that all you're trying to do is get all that ask the question and you know is what i'm doing working yes absolutely then keep on going for another 10 minutes saying yes 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 but because you'll get down to some specifics or you'll you'll finally yeah. get down to the core of what's working or maybe there's some aspects that aren't working that you didn't know about yeah. And our, that'll creep in. So I think that's, yeah. uh, I, I like that. Let me share one more journaling practice that I find really Absolutely. powerful, as you mentioned it. Uh, and then I've got a question for you as well. So this idea comes from Seth Godin. He calls yeah. it a more of less of list. And it's another really great, simple exercise. You draw a line down the middle of a sheet of paper. Yeah. And on one side, you write things you want more of in your life. And on the other side, you write things you want less of in your life. Again, it sounds very simple. And the first few things that come up are very trivial. It's like, I don't know, I want more money. I want more time. I want more whatever. And I want less meetings, less busyness. But as you sit down for a while and really think about it, it's been very powerful. And it's something I regularly revisit. So that's another recommendation for an easy exercise to do. And then question, I'm just really curious if you don't mind sharing, what does your journaling practice look like at the moment? Do you have like set prompts for yourself or is it very free flow? That's great. Thank you for asking. So I I do, um, I started with Julia Cameron's morning pages, mm. 
was, I mean, I've done journaling since I was quite, quite young, but I think that's where I've settled into getting up, waking up in the morning, getting my cup of coffee and journaling for three, three pages. And it can be anything that um, I want. Uh, Then throughout the day, if I need to do something, whether it's writing a blog or uh, some other a creative thing, then I'll, I will either take a prompt or I'll just write and I'll put a time or a distance on it. Uh, but I'll do that at any one time. But I'm very, very careful in my writing to not mix in editing and writing. Mm, no. so those are two totally different practices. No. I'll, I tend to go through and I'll write, you know, I, I'm working on a blog now. And so I just wrote five pages and then that'll get typed up and it'll be totally different once it, through the typing. And then that'll sit for a bit and then I'll go back through and, and rewrite it. But that's my journaling is uh, the morning pages and then hit or miss whenever I need to do any others. That's awesome. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Max. It's been a delight. You are an incredible being. You've got, uh, you're very deep. Uh, Thank you. Lots of philosophy, lots of good ideas, lots of practical stuff. So it's uh, it's wonderful. Lots to share there. I, I so much appreciate uh, you taking time out and speaking with me today. Thank you. Likewise, it was a wonderful conversation. I'm sure we could have gone on for many, many hours. Thank you for joining our Barefoot Lunch today. You can find out more about Max at www.maxfrenzel.com. That's Max M A X F R E N Z E L dot com. Please give uh, Barefoot Lunch a thumbs up, and I will leave you with the music of Max Frenzel. Have a great day.